HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn at 261 Moore Street, where brunch is being served right now. Uh, my guests today are actually in studio. It's kind of weird, actually, to have so many people in the studio because I'm so used to having the phone-in guests lately. But um, I'm very happy to announce that today's program will be devoted to urban agriculture and... As such, we have a couple of pioneers and their crew in the studio today. Anastasia, um, <laughs> totally forgot your last name. Plakius. Thank you. Anastasia it's forgettable. Plakius, not at all, <laughs> never. And Ben Flanner, who are two of the founders of the Brooklyn Grange, one of the most successful rooftop farming projects in the country, I suspect. I'm surprised you guys aren't like making mad money doing uh, consulting work all over these <laughs> states right now. That's, that's, that's your next project, start promoting what you know. Um, and with them are two of their um, key new people, I think. Um, would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Um, Michael Meyer, farm manager this season. <gasps> farm manager. Ooh. <laughs> Wearing the mantle of greatness. <laughs> and? Chase Emmons, uh, chief beekeeper and director of business development. Oh, bees and business. I like that. <laughs> it's all about bees and business, folks. So tell us, uh, just give us a quick thumbnail, because we have talked about the Grange several times on this program in the past. Um, you guys are gearing up for a new season, obviously. You have a new farm manager. Um, so what's what's happening with the Grange? And then let's talk about something new in the works for the Grange folk. Tell us everything. Come on, farm manager. Let's hear what's happening. Um, we've got a new roof this season. It's going to be really exciting for us. We're expanding to a second location uh, in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Ah, so yeah. um, we're going to have a, uh, a second location that's going to be about one and a half times the space of our, of our uh, flagship farm. Um, and Which is how big? Uh, just under an acre, 38,000 mm-hmm. square feet. So you're going to be doing like an acre and a half of farming at the Brooklyn Navy Yard? Yeah. And is that going to be a rooftop experience also, or is that going to be in on the ground level? Nope. Rooftop again. I think this is the 11th floor, so we're moving on up in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how did the Brooklyn Navy Yard come to be your, um, you know, your location of choice? What happened? 
Um, Thank you, Ben. Ben Flanner sure. speaking. This out. is Ben. Hey, uh, great to be here, Katie. Always good to have you here, Ben. I enjoy your company. <laughs> well, we found the we found the Navy Yards, and and it was a place that that had all these empty buildings or you know empty roofs at least, and uh, and a significant amount of area. And we basically approached them, and uh, I think a, a couple other things happened in parallel, and then we started some meetings and, and basically reached a, an agreement that, that, that we were going to put up a rooftop farm pretty quickly. Amazing. So you guys are in construction now for that project? Um, it will be starting very shortly. Incredible. And do you have to do the same kind of, um, you know, the engineering of, of the original Brooklyn Grange? You had to find a building that could support that much weight in terms of dirt and water. Um, you, have, you were able to find a similarly constructed building that was able to manage the same thing, or do you have to do any retrofitting for that? Sure. It's called Building Number 3, and it is uh, plenty strong. It has a concrete roof deck and, and adequate spacing between the vertical columns and the girders and, and so forth. And the structural analysis has already been completed. So at this point, um, it's just a matter of, of getting getting the work done and getting the green roof system and the soil up on the roof. Wow. And uh, I, I forget what you guys told me, the amount of soil you had to put up for the flagship farm, but it was something really extraordinary, like in the form of several tons. Yeah, it was just over a million pounds. And, and oh, more be, than, a, <laughs> more than several tons, a million pounds of dirt. Yeah, baby. Where do you get the dirt from? Uh, it comes from a mushroom composting facility in Pennsylvania. It's no es- kidding. Yeah, it's essentially the 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 product. They they, they grow mushrooms in compost. Yeah, and then they take the, um, the 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 completed product and they continue to break that down. They have huge windrows. Chase and I went out there last fall. It was a great field trip. Just huge piles of steam all over the place. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> And uh, then they continue to break it down. They monitor the compost a bit, and they come up with a good product. They give it to farmers, landscapers, and then um, sort of merged into the green roof business where they blend it with lightweight stone and then also sell that. Mm-hmm. And do you, you have to pay for this, right? Uh, we do, yeah. Is that like a big part of your financial uh, you know, undertaking here is, is paying for the million-plus pounds of soil? What does a pound of soil go for? A, a, uh, I'd have to think about it per pound. <laughs> Okay. Um, it's a little over a little over one hundred fifty dollars per yard. Per yard? Oh, you measure it by the yard. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Um, Very cool. So, are you guys going to grow the same kind of crops there that you grow in the original farm? Um, in general, yes. We're we're always experimenting. There will be different. You know, we're, we're testing new chicories and different types of heirloom tomatoes constantly. Um, but in general, it'll be it'll be con- consistent, but also kind of take, allow us to take it to the next level in terms of rotating our crops and having different crops growing at, at each farm. We can almost start treating each farm like a separate field, mm-hmm. which will really allow us to mature our farming practices in terms of dealing with pest and disease problems in case there's an insect invasion of some sort or a mold or a fungus or anything like that. Uh, just out of curiosity, do you guys use only sort of heirloom quality seeds or do you um, are you buying commercial commercially available non-monsanto seeds yeah um we focus uh, exclusively on you know open pollinated and heirloom seeds where we mm-hmm. can um so the majority of our seeds we purchase from uh johnny's seed company or fedco um uh, for some of the specialty heirloom crops that we get uh especially with Anastasia here, who is kind of our key into the food world and what's cool and hot, <laughs> like Spigarello or Agretti last season. We'll get those from small-scale uh, uh, foreign um, companies. I also make a, this is Anastasia now, I, uh, I make an annual pilgrimage with my folks out to uh, 
the Baker's Creek Heirloom Seed Bank in Petaluma, California. It, it literally is an ex-bank. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they have 12,000. Well, actually, my first visit, they had 12,000. I think they've upped it from, from there. Uh, different cultivars uh, available. And so it's always kind of this, like, you know, it feels like those old programs where you have, like, 10 minutes to spend, like, $100, and you're just grabbing things. And so I go in there, and it's always <laughs> it's always kind of overwhelming to pick out the, the couple things that, that strike me the most. And Ben always gets these frantic calls from me about various <laughs> seeds. Can and, we grow this? Yeah. <laughs> what the heck is this? <laughs> I can Looks imagine. good. Yeah, right? It's yeah. a dollar. Let's get We're it. We're also doing something kind of cool with uh, the seed-saving pro- project. Yeah, I was going to ask, that was my next question is, are you saving seeds? So what's, what's happening with that? Because surely you yeah. must be feeding back into these seed banks, right? Yeah, we, we do a bit of, of saving on our own, um, particularly with heirloom tomatoes, tomatillos, certain peppers, the ahi dulces, for example. But then also we, we struck up a partnership with the great Zach Pickens this year, uh, who has a new company that he started called Rooftop Ready. And he's actually been experimenting with it for a few years now. Mm. Um, and um, he claims to have made some significant strides, especially with lettuces and things like that, where he, he saves in the traditional uh, strategy of finding the plants that are the, the most successful in their environment, allowing those to go to seed, saving those seeds, and then starting a new generation. And then over time, with several generations, you end up with something that's better adapted to both New York, urban environment, as well as a rooftop. Oh, how so interesting. Cool. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. Now, you guys, um, your new project uh, is, part of it is about a stormwater management, or part of the money that you've raised or managed to secure for this project is about managing stormwater. And what's that all about? I mean, tell us how that, how you got into that and and what it means and why do we care whether stormwater is managed? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, uh, we're living uh, at this point in a city whose sewer system was built Uh, well before a period of rapid development. So when New York City's sewer system was built, there was a lot more green space available, and rainwater was absorbed uh, at a much greater rate. And now, with all these non-porous surfaces, all this concrete that's uh, been added, um, you know, there's just a lot more uh, water entering the... uh, the sewer systems and the combined sewage overflow um, has become a real problem for not just New York City, but a lot of cities out there. So um, now everybody's looking to different uh, creative ways to manage stormwater. A big one is green roofs and an intensive green roof with deeper soil like ours that can support edible plants really absorb uh, a tremendous amount of stormwater, more so than an extensive green roof, just, you know, a little sedum green roof that you might have um, up on a roof. So uh, we're really excited to be working with the Department of Environmental Protection uh, and Brooklyn Navy Yard will be managing a million gallons of stormwater at uh, the Navy Yard Farm. And, and just one note on the Navy Yard Farm, we, re- we were awarded a grant from the Department of Environmental Protection, which is going to pay about 75% of the installation cost um, as, a, as a program and a grant application that they had for creative projects which catch stormwater, mm-hmm. particularly um, in the case of thunderstorms and quick, heavy rainstorms. That's their prime focus. Fascinating. Um, and and this season actually we'll be working on a on a project with a couple of folks from Pratt um, who will be actually studying and having hard you know data come back on the, the the stormwater management that actually happens with the farm. There's been some speculation that uh, with a traditional green roof um, that more 
uh, more stormwater is managed because there's usually less need to irrigate. And since we're a farm, a lot of critics of rooftop agriculture have said, well, if you're adding more water to the system, you're actually not mitigating as much water as you otherwise would. And uh, some some pretty smart folks have said, well, maybe that's not the case because if you're growing, say, tomatoes, which are you know uh, X percentage, high percentage of water, you're actually pulling much more out of the system. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we'll have some cool facts and figures on that later this year. And do you capture the water um, so that you use it in subsequent you know, periods when it's dry, for instance? Do you have like cisterns or how, how is that managed? We don't have cisterns on the, the flagship farm, but um, the green roof system we use is uh, extremely efficient in holding uh, some rainwater that's not absorbed by our soil. Um, of course, with you know a rooftop farm, you want to make sure that your soil drains well. Uh, you don't want a lot of water sitting on the farm. So that water might drain through the soil, but there is a drainage mat. Uh, the second layer of our green roof is a drainage mat. It's a uh, hard plastic, kind of looks like egg, egg crates. And that'll hold an inch of water in reserve. So um, we are able to capture and use quite a bit of, of rainfall uh, for our plants. The, the roots of the plants will actually just extend through the, through the beds, um, through the top layer of felt in our green roof system, and wick that moisture back up from our drainage mats. Cool. Fantastic. Now, you guys are... Very high tech. I'm telling you. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's next level. Started um, with the Germans, by the way. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Cool. Um, so you guys have gotten quite a bit of support from the city and particularly from uh, Council Speaker Quinn. City Council Speaker? Speaker yeah, she's been very council. supportive. Uh, she's been up to the farm along with Jimmy Von Bramer, our, our councilman in, in the neighborhood in Queens. And um, yeah, her staff's been great. They have the new Food Works program, so they're definitely focused on food policy and, and trying to increase, you know, improve one's people's diets and just the whole food system across the city. Um, including distribution. So um, I think what we're doing is very representative of, of the kind of forward thinking that they're that they're pushing. So so we're definitely aligned in our. Goals. So is yeah absolutely and is uh, and the mayor's office as well is 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 supporting all of these activities. Do you guys have competition? Who else is doing this? Or are you the only ones? Um, Go- uh, Gotham Greens. Yeah. If you're aware of them, they just I am. Launched I've their, had them uh, on the show several. Oh times. great! Yeah, yeah. Farage and Jen. Uh, they just launched their their hydroponic greenhouse, um, as as you know about, as they've been on the show. Yeah, and, and that's um, a one acre. That's also a one acre hydroponic it's, project. I think it's a bit less. Is it? Oh, mm-hmm. maybe ten thousand square. No, it's I like fifteen thousand square. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. A little less than half. Uh, yeah, because Jen, it was a couple of years that she was here since she was here. So she came on with Dixon de Pommier. Like it was one of oh, the nice. first shows that I did with Patrick um, when we first started the, sh- the radio station, actually, was we had Dixon and Jen on, and they were just fantastic guests. Do you guys also work with, with the vertical farming community? Because there's quite a few people who are getting into that. Yeah, actually, Dixon was at an event um, w- with me last week, so, so I got to catch up with him for a mm-hmm. bit first time in a long time. And, uh, and then speaking of the vertical farm, um, there's a lot of that in the news as, as Many people may know he's sort of the the father, the the sort of the the, uh, he's v- the visionary, the big granddaddy of that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, he he was talking about the the number of Google searches as they've gone from basically like if you Google vertical farm and you do it ten years ago versus now, it's gone from like in the dozens or hundreds to like fifty million hits or something. Amazing. Like that. Um, uh, Will Allen in Milwaukee, the also the kind of guru of, of urban agriculture, all things including aquaponics, hydroponics, soil composting, worms. <laughs> He's the man. Um, he just announced a plan or a goal of building a five-story vertical farm in Milwaukee. 
So it'll be interesting to, to keep tabs on that project. Absolutely. I'm going to follow up on that. I'd like to have him on the show sometime too. So, um, <clears throat> Jack, I think maybe we'll take like a 30 second sponsor drop now, and then we'll come back and talk about sort of the bigger picture of urban ag across the country since we're talking vertical farms in Milwaukee now. program was brought to you by Fairway Market. Whether you are cooking for one or for a crowd, Fairway Market literally has everything you need for a fantastic meal. But if you don't feel like cooking, no worries, they cater. Check out fairwaymarket.com for more information and be sure to check the new blog on our plate for weekly specials, health tips, and recipes. Welcome back to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and in the studio with me today are the wonderkind uh, behind the Brooklyn Grange. Um, it's Anastasia Plakius. Plakius. God. You're going to get it. I am going to get it. I just have to think of... Um, of the sculptor, the early Greek sculptor, and then I will get it. Yeah, it sort of sounds Greek and Italian at the same time. It's totally Greek. Just like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And uh, Ben Flanner, of course, and then um, Chase. Chase Emmons. Chase Emmons and Mike. Michael Meyer. Thank you, Michael Meyer. I'm sorry. You know, sounds familiar, International man it? of farming. <laughs> the international man of farm management. Mysterious farming. Um, so one of the things you guys are doing, um, Chase, we were just talking in the break a little bit about um, you know, the business of farming and whether or not uh, that's going to become a viable um, you know, just a, something that people can use in the city, not only to guarantee our food security, but also to generate new sources of revenue and food. And you're the business development man, and you're also the beekeeper. Yes, I so wear two hats. So bees, bees <laughs> are apparently beginning to show uh, promise as a revenue stream for the Grange. Why don't you talk a little bit about your bee-saving bee program? About my bee project? And then also how you ra- what business development means for you. Sure. Uh, business development and urban farming and rooftop farming is very interesting. We'll get, yeah, we'll get to that. But the bees are... Uh, pretty much it was like it's been a project of mine. Just I've been a beekeeper. I grew up born and raised in New York City, but spent a lot of time up in Massachusetts. Got into beekeeping about 10 years ago just on a lark. Oh. A friend of mine got a hive, and I'm like, what are you, crazy? Like, stinging insects? Like, you're nuts. Mm. And after I checked it out for a few days, I was just like, I got to do this. Do so the bees cool. love you? Uh, yeah, you know, bees love anyone who are happy to give them a nice, comfortable home and basically leave them alone. Um, just like cats. Yeah, actually, it's easier. Having a beehive is easier than having cats, guaranteed, because I have cats, too, so I can... I, actually, I, my cat is incredibly demanding of my time and attention. And yeah. they don't give you honey, which is really a strike against them. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> and they do have a litter box, which is really a drag. Okay, so what do you do with the bees? Well, uh, I don't know, it, beekeeping was actually illegal in New York City. Uh, from In 1999, Giuliani made it illegal for no particular reason. There was like a list of several hundred animals you couldn't have in the city, and bees were on it. No one knew why. And the New York City beekeeping community spent 10 years getting it legalized again. So I I was actually able to luck out um, from all their efforts and come on the scene right after it was legalized. So great. It's good for me. Uh, When I came across the Grange, I realized you guys got to have a few hives up here. 
So pretty much we set up four hives last season on the Grange, uh, one on top of Bobo, which is a restaurant in Greenwich Village as well. And in our first season, we got over 300 pounds of honey, which wow. is a sizable revenue stream when you really crunch the numbers. Most definitely. I mean, your inputs are practically zero, right? It's just the hive. Just time. Yeah, you know, there's there's some time. There's this slight capital up front of yep. like buying the hives, buying the bees. But otherwise, it's it's an incredibly profitable revenue stream. I mean, a, a revenue source. Return on investment is, you know, gauged in weeks, you know, months, not Amazing. years. Yeah. So, and then it's like you're right. They're, they're there. Uh, the big trick is coming across bees that will then survive the winter and don't need a lot of inputs, hopefully no chemical inputs. And that's sort of like going along, our, our, going along with our seed-saving projects. We're starting a big, what, we, what we're calling New York City's first commercial apiary, though if anyone comes out of the woodwork and says, no, here's records of something else, fine, fair enough. Uh, but in the Navy Yards, we're going to have between 20 and 30 hives. And yeah, we're going to get honey. Yeah, it's a revenue generator. But part of that project is genetics. We want to raise bees that it's kind of like any animal husbandry where or with plants where, you know, the ones that are most successful, you breed with the ones that are most successful and you get ones that are even more successful. And ultimately, in like three years or so, we hope to end up with what we call New York City genetics, Mm -hmm. which will be bees that are just easy to take care of, really well adapted to the New York City environment, don't need chemical inputs, and people can actually then purchase bees from us as well, not just honey. Right now, everyone up in the Northeast purchases their bees from the southern states. So like Georgia, Florida, you know, you can't really get local bees unless you have a friend and they have a good hive and then you split their hive. But there's no real commercial source in the Northeast for bees. And we plan on changing that in the next few years. Fantastic. And, and that's part of our goal because right now the survival rates are, they're decent, but they could be a lot higher. And especially from an animal husbandry point of view, you know, if you're raising a, a colony of something and... You know, and using its honey, you, you want to give it as, as much love as you can to get through the winter. So, so you know, ideally you want 100% survival rate so the bees are 100%. How, yeah. do, how do you get bees through the winter? Well, do they normally migrate out of uh, no, the no, northeast? The, I mean, the, no, the normal cycle is that bees, like feral bees, essentially, the way bees live, to, well, cats mer- again. <laughs> like cats. They, they hibernate. And it's not really hibernate, they kind of go dormant. And really, it's just it's a cool process because it's all about saving the queen. Mm-hmm. So in the fall, the queen raises a bunch of new workers that their sole purpose over the winter is to cluster around her in a ball, keep her warm, keep her fed. And that it's like suicide mission. That ball gets smaller and smaller and smaller over the winter. And as long as she's alive and a couple of attendants, by the time it gets warm, it all starts all over again. Biggest problem is it gets really cold or they, if they were stressed by disease before they went into the winter, if they didn't stock away enough honey. And this winter, actually, the warm winter we've had, counterintuitive has been a bad thing. Because the bees haven't gone as dormant as they could, so they've been eating through their their food supplies a lot faster than normal. So and to, do you have to supplement their feed? Yeah, we supplement them with just straight sugar syrup, so mm-hmm. like one to one sugar syrup, nothing you know, nothing else. But that's that's like a power bar to get them through the, the hard times. Right. You were talking earlier about uh, chemical inputs. What kind of chemical inputs do uh, traditional beekeepers? Use. I mean, uh, I had no idea that people were feeding their bees chemicals. Well, yeah. So the way real commercial beekeepers really make their money is through pollination. Like honey is kind of superfluous to them. Mm-hmm. They travel around the country in trucks with 
thousands of hives and they pollinate crop to crop to crop depending on the season. I've heard that that was what was causing colony collapse disorder. Is that correct? Uh, you know, no one has, every time someone thinks they figured out the quote unquote cause, they realize it's just one of many. It's really just a lot of stressors that people are putting on them. Um, so these beekeepers make all their money out of pollination, which means keep the bees alive at all, at all costs. So if they have a disease, they'll pump in antibiotics, they'll do whatever they have to do to like cure the bees long enough to get them to pollinate, to get paid, and then move on. As we know with any type of industrialized animal raising, the way we're doing in, in our culture, it, that just ends up creating a weaker and weaker population. Interesting. Fascinating. Jack, I heard many bites there, didn't you? <laughs> That's for our daily bite. <laughs> Jack and I produce these little one-minute yeah. food news things that are so much fun and Bee geekery is just uh, part yeah. of the kind of <laughs> thing called, that really makes me excited. We're called beaks, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> um, so uh, when you talk about business development, what are your some of the projects? I know Anastasia mentioned a couple of sort of nonprofit al- elements of your business model, but what are, what are the, some of the things you're doing to sort of raise revenue and develop your business? Tell well, me what that means, actually, for you. You know, it, one of the things is, is as Ben will say, it, we're, we're always being creative. We always have our eyes open for new potential revenue streams because this is such, an, this is such new territory. I, we, we're, you know, we're, we're pioneers. There isn't really a benchmark to gauge it. Against. It's not like, okay, you have to go do this or look at this market and, 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 and be efficient in this market. It's really there's no model to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the biggest things, at least that, that I have in my head, is scoping new roofs and new revenue streams, actually new revenue sources in order to finance building those roofs. Because we plan on building, hopefully, another big roof every year for the next few years. Now, last year, I think, Ben, you told me you uh, raised something like 15,000 pounds of product. Was that right? Indeed. And so when you more than double your thing, you'll have like 30, maybe close to 40,000 pounds. Yeah, maybe mid-30s. And so where where are you? You're selling this all through CSAs and into restaurants, or are you going to start being able to produce enough product to get into supermarkets? What's the goal there? Um, farmers markets, restaurants, mm-hmm. CSAs, and then also some you know potentially retail deliveries. Especially we'll start out with some of the smaller retailers around um, particularly around Brooklyn and Queens. Right. So you would be going into places like um, Fairway? Or is um, that too big? We'll start even smaller than that, like uh, Brooklyn Kitchen, Marlowe right. & Daughters, um, maybe Foragers, places mm-hmm. like that, that that are a little bit um, you know, more uh, family business types. Right. That yeah, we don't good. have a problem selling all of our produce. I, I, There's nothing left. Yeah. Another exciting revenue stream that we've kind of identified recently is uh, our events program. Um, a lot of people are looking for uh, an interesting space to get married or have a 50th anniversary party, and there's just there's as long as they don't touch the plants. No touching, yeah, no right. touching the plants. Uh, no, it's it's you it's, break it, you bought it. No getting drunk and falling into a bed. <laughs> it might have happened once yeah. or twice. Yeah. Uh, but I'm particularly excited because we're actually uh, there's there's an elevator being built right up to the farm. So this year, uh, when we're doing events, it means I don't have to lug like you know pallets of chairs up two flights of stairs to get them up to the roof. So there's a uh, a wonderfully accessible event space uh, right there for the book, and everybody should email me to have their have and their people can put a tent up if they need yeah. to and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's all beautiful. set up for that. Yeah. yeah, it's gorgeous. That's great. And you didn't have to get any special licensing, or should I not even go there? No, we do. We everything's above the board. You know, we apply for the liquor licenses and everything. Um, definitely. 
definitely like to to keep it keep it safe but uh but it's it's really wonderful and ben is um as, as efficient of a farmer as he is he's also a, a very aesthetically uh conscious farmer and he last year planted sunflowers all along the parapet wall next to the table Good so move. we would have these yeah it was a beautiful sunset like you know the lights filtering through the petals of the sunflowers and guests absolutely love it you know they spend most of the time just taking cell phone photos but once they actually put the phone away and enjoy the evening they they always have a good time <laughs> One other uh, interesting revenue or, or um, sales test that we're doing is mushroom growing. We have 25 inoculated mushroom logs, thanks to Gwen and her workshop that she did late last summer. So they're, they're inoculated with shiitake um, uh, mycelium or spores, and we're going to test those. And we'll treat them just like any other vegetable, where we look at its yield um, per square foot that it takes up, and then how many dollars per, per pound do we get, what's it worth, and then is it worth maybe doubling or tripling or expanding the mushroom production very year. interesting and you guys could grow all kinds could grow head of the woods on the up exactly like that. Yeah. i mean there's a lot of varieties that shiitake is well. the gateway yeah absolutely. there's also our, our like our value-added products i mean yeah you got, they, like we make some mo- the most uh, clearly we bottle our honey and we make some candles out of our beeswax but we've got hot sauces that are just outstanding they are i can tell you i've, I've, I've tried them they're and excellent Ana- and anastasia's salsa verde yeah, baby. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, let's take this up because we don't unfortunately have a whole lot more time. Um, you are part of a movement that seems to be sweeping the nation. Um, we were talking before the break about the vertical farming project in Milwaukee. Um, I sent you guys an article that I picked up on uh, the Seattle food forest that's just uh, about to launch itself, seven acres of, of readily available fruit trees, nut trees, herbs, and a variety of other products that um, are open to the public, which seems incredible to me. We'll see what happens with that um but there's all kinds of of projects like this going across the country and and uh, michael you were mentioning a few of them earlier before we came into the studio um yeah there's a there's a whole lot kind of happening with urban and small-scale agriculture right now that's pretty interesting i mean and they all have they all complement each other in such great ways you know talking about the 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 seattle edible forest i mean seven acres of you know permaculture based uh fruit and nut trees that people can go in and and forage for themselves is is a great idea it's i mean it's something that's that's in the same vein as what we're doing as a you know a a fiscally sustainable commercial business model for rooftop agriculture and then you also look at all of the you know nonprofit organizations in the city and you know across the country that are dealing with food justice and food access issues so um you know from from the nonprofit ngo corporate i I mean, there's a, there's just such great energy around farming right now, and looking at what's happening with the government in terms of uh, funding and focusing on on young farmers, um, this is really uh, a, a better time than ever for people who are interested. You know, I mean, like myself, I'm 25. I left a cushy corporate <laughs> job to to become a farmer, and you know, I'm and I'm so enthused about the energy uh, and the resources that are now being made available for young people who want to be farmers. Um, you know, if you're interested, <laughs> if you're a young person, you're interested in farming, uh, you know, there are so many resources out there, National Young Farmers Coalition, uh, etc. So, And just, just another tidbit on that, last week uh, in the middle of the snowstorm, Michael and I and Zach Pickens, the seed saver, went up to visit Elliot Coleman, the 73-year-old guru of, of small-scale organic farming, and he used an interesting analogy. He was speaking about the rate at which people have climbed El Capitan in California, comparing it with probably from the 60s or the 70s from his mountain climbing days and said something. I'm going to get the, the time wrong, but he said that they climbed El Capitan in something like 42 hours and uh, recently it was climbed as, as low as like three hours or two hours or something like that. And he was 
optimistically predicting that the, the youthful energy that is getting into small-scale um, farming is going to have a parallel improvement like that. So that was really exciting to hear from somebody as well-respected as that. One thing I will say, though, about all these exciting projects that are happening all over the country, um, especially things like the Seattle Food Forest, we really need to focus um, right now on on educating the, the, the consumer and the community about sustainable agriculture, healthy eating. Um, you know, without that knowledge, people's, th- this access means nothing. So unless people know how to use the, these products and why they're important, why they're good for you, um, and that's, you know, that's something that while we are really focused on being a commercial business at the Brooklyn Grange, we're also, you know, we do run an, an educational nonprofit called City Growers, and we bring youth up by the thousands every season to educate them about uh, sustainability and urban agriculture and making healthy food choices. And I think that's just such an incredibly important aspect of what we're all doing. And um, Ben, who taught me everything I know about farming, is one of the most wonderful teachers. And this whole experience has taught me that um, every great farmer is also a, a great teacher. I'm trying to make vegetables cool. Yeah, man, make the vegetable <laughs> cool. Well, it is an interesting conundrum. I mean, uh, I know we we mentioned this a few minutes ago, or just before the show, that that um, and you certainly touched on it. And this is a mantra for me. But if we don't bring home ec back, if people don't know how to cook, if we don't teach kids right away that food is something that you make in your house, not that you buy um, already prepared for you. Uh, you know, as you say, this is all kind of irrelevant. It's just kind of a cool hobby. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a strong proponent of, of bringing food back into the school system and, and making, and not just food, but shop. Hello, what about learning how to do basic stuff Make around stuff. the house, man? I mean, it's just, it blows my mind that those skills are so quickly being lost after generations of Americans being so proud of their self-sustaining, you know, abilities and, and the, you know, their their can-do attitude. And, and we've all turned into these lumps of, you know... <laughs> We hope. Of incompetent fools, you know, who can't figure out how to boil a potato. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it, 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 like, I think I, I've seen, we might be experiencing the cultural shift now. Yesterday, Ben and I were at Hampshire College for a presentation, and uh, Ben was trying to explain to the crowd what a CSA was, and they're all like, we know what a CSA is. And normally people are like, what's a CSA? Mm-hmm. They were just like, why are you even saying this? Yeah, so, well, Hampshire, real representative yeah, sample. But, you know, <laughs> but even here in the city, we have... Hampshire a, a, students, please ignore her. We have yeah. a great internship and, and apprenticeship and volunteer program. And, you know, there's just more people every day who come up to the farm. And, and I'm, you know, we're all very surprised sometimes by what they already know about farming and, and, and you know, food issues. So it's just great to see. Well, I think it's a real... I mean, it's representative of the New York mic- microcosm. Um, I'm unfortunately not so confident that it has spread beyond the east or west coasts or the big cities. But, you know, it, you, you got to start somewhere, and you guys have certainly made a major start. Unfortunately, folks, we got to wrap this up. It's been a great pleasure to have you here in the studio. Please come back soon and let me know when the Brooklyn Navy Yard thing think, is online. Thanks for having us, Katie. Many Thank thanks you. to the Brooklyn Grange. Many thanks to my sponsor and to my inimitable engineer, producer, and partner in crime, Jack Inslee. We'll see you next week, folks. We have um, the American Livestock Breed Conservative is launching a program to employ veterans in raising livestock breeds. This is going to be a really interesting show. I'm very excited about having these people on. We have a farmer and um, and somebody from the ALBC who will be joining me by the phone. So please do tune in next week to Straight No Chaser at 1 p.m. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. 
You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.